Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 231 with my guest Lisa Richards. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. A place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. I'm not a therapist. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Go there, check it out. Fill out a survey that uh, helps us get to know you, uh, the listener. Uh, Browse the forum. Um, now there's a bunch of other shit (laughs) my brain is not working very well that's not a good sign that at the top of the show my brain is not working well Um, I want to start this off uh, with an email that I got and um, yeah I'm just gonna I'm just gonna read the email Um, and she calls herself a listener from uh, New York City And she writes, Dear Paul, I felt so disappointed by some of your comments in this week's podcast. Uh, She's talking about the episode with um, uh, Derek Block, uh, which is last week's episode. Uh, Felt so disappointed by some of your comments in this week's podcast that I could not finish the episode after your great interview with Derek. I know that you mean well, and although I do not know you personally, I truly believe you are one of the least judgmental people I know of. That being said, I felt the need to share why I felt a pain in my chest every time you hoped that the South Carolina gunman was mentally ill and or had some kind of psychotic break. He is a man who wanted to kill black people. Hate is not a mental disorder. Neither is racism, homophobia, sexism, transgender bashing. None of these are mental illnesses. They are learned behaviors. They are in many ways cornerstones of our nation. He sat there for an hour and prayed with those he was about to kill. It is reported that he almost did not go through with it because, quote, they were so nice to him. They welcomed him and he killed them. 
the media's first response is always similar to yours when the shooter is a white man. This is painful for so many people. Does our society afford the same to people of color? The young girl, dragged and pinned to the ground in her bikini by a Texas police officer. Has that been resolved? Why was the killer of nine people standing while he was arrested? Why was he transported in a bulletproof vest? Why was a young black man recently killed in the back of a cop van because he was not correctly secured in his seat? Now, usually I do not reach out with comments such as the ones I am sending you because I am not an extremist. I like to wait for facts, whether they are in line with what I would like to believe or not. I am a black woman, but I will never have it in me to hate white people for what other whites have done or even the privilege they are born into in our country. This That is just as much your fault as it was mine, being born to black parents. Where it differs is in how people use their privilege. So many people listen to you, Paul. So many people heed your advice, whether you like it or not. So many people love you. It hurt me to think of you and many other people listening to uh, other people listening to think of this man as first mentally ill and second as a fucking piece of hate-filled shit. I sat in my living room as I showed my boyfriend the video of the pool party in McKinney, Texas. He asked me how I felt about it. I was crying. I was crying because I felt helpless and hopeless and somewhat protective of him. My white boyfriend held me as I sobbed explained to him that by being with me, he had to burst his bubble. He may never be able to look at the world the same again. If we have children, he will know the fear that parents of black children know. He now realizes that the world is less less safe for black people and their children, and it broke his heart. Those people were killed because of the color of their skin. Yet still some say it was because they were Christian. Yet still the Confederate flag flies at the state capitol. Yet many still see the killer, and their thought is that he had to be out of his mind. What if he wasn't? What if he was bred this way by our neighbors, by extremists, by the institutionalized racism that is still so strong in our country? What if he knew exactly what he was doing and why? What about the people cheering him on right now? Gun control won't fix this. His state of mental health won't fix this. Ending racism in our time could fix this. I do, not, I do not want to have children who will enter and grow up in the world the way it stands today. The only time I want my future child to see a Confederate flag in person is when I take them to a museum. If you want to link, link mental health to these issues, let's start a conversation about how many people have been completely traumatized by racism. Many people live in fear every day and would never call the police because they can't, because they won't, because they know it may not be the safest thing to do. Those children at the pool party in McKinney, the families of the victims in South Carolina, they should be spoken of. They need help. They need therapy, support groups, something. Because when they grow up or raise children in the fear that has been created by these events, nothing will change. It was a very sobering letter to read, and um, you know when I made the the and this is going to come off as me backpedaling, and I suppose in a way it is a little bit. But when I recorded um, what I said on last week's episode, 
it was about three or four hours before the stuff came into the media, at least that I saw it on the media, about this guy's history. And I felt a little bit of a sickness in my stomach um, that I had spoken before. I had all the facts. But your letter made me realize that I still didn't fully grasp um, how far-reaching racism is in our in our country. You know, when you described um, crying watching the the video um, and bursting your boyfriend's bubble. Um, I, I realized that just because I'm liberal and I'm against racism doesn't mean that my brain hasn't been tainted by racism. And and that I probably still have, have some um, remnants um, of racism in me that I, that, that, that I can't see because I think any time you minimize or discount something, um, it may not be malicious racism, but it's still racism. And, um, you know, I thought about going back and editing out what I said in that, in last week's episode, but something in me said, leave it in there because even though it doesn't make you look good, um, maybe this will get a, a a dialogue going about this issue. Um, but I, but I got to be honest, there's a part of me that really just wants to go edit that out because, um, you know, I've, I got a half dozen emails from people that told me that, uh, um, they are no long, they will no longer listen to the podcast because of what I said. And so I'm sure there are a lot more than that. Um, but I just want to thank you for, um, not sending me an email like I got today from somebody who said that, um, you know, they really started to personally attack me. And, you know, they said when they were listening to the podcast, they threw their phone across the room. And then they really kind of went on to attack me. And, you know, the one thing that I think we can never go wrong in with when we disagree with other people is to try to keep some semblance of love. Um, And respect. And I want to thank you for showing love and respect to me um, in that letter that was difficult to hear. Beautiful to read, but um, difficult to hear because it, I felt stupid. And um, that's one of my biggest fears is looking stupid. And there I had a stupid moment. Um, out there for everybody to hear and I know that your intent is not to make me look stupid because this is not about me this is this is 
um, about our society and where it's headed. And um, I just want to thank any person who has ever sent me an email that has disagreed with me in a tone that is loving and respectful because that is where I am given a chance to grow and examine who I am and what I think. And anybody who hasn't, you can go fuck yourselves. My God, somebody does what I've been doing. There's shame. You have boundary issues. I feel guilty for hating my mom. I will be high by 4 p.m. You feel helpless. I will be in hell by 4.15. Prison was not easy, but I deserved it. I think I'm just addicted to lying. I rubbed my body in mud and I laid in the swamp. Didn't move for six hours. I looked forward to and dreaded each meal at the same time. I think I desperately, desperately wanted to talk about it, but I didn't know how to start the conversation. And that's when I, I called the suicide hotline. A good Craigslist experience is if you are alive at the end of it. So... <laughs> <laughs> so... That is when I first felt love. Like, I first felt reaching out to the people and sharing with the other people. Um, this intimate connection where people do stuff for each other without wanting something in return. Yeah, I just, I surrender. I think I was 28, and that was the first time I ever experienced that, and it was amazing. I'm here with Lisa Richards, who is a licensed clinical social worker. And uh, she is the author of a book um, called Dear Mallory, uh, Letters to a Teenage Girl Who Killed Herself. And Mallory was your daughter uh, who took her life uh, when she was 18? Yes. And uh, this was how many years ago? A little over four years ago, Paul. Okay. Um, let's start by reading... Um, her, the letter that she left. Sure. It's from the beginning of the book. Dear Mom, I love you so much. I am so sorry. I have stalled and have waited to write this letter because I know that there is nothing I could say to make this okay. But I know that you'll want to understand why this happened I'll do my best to explain. Honestly, I've been feeling totally overwhelmed with life. I feel like living has become a series of events and emotions and tasks, and it's too much for me. I get stuck in my head a lot. I'm thinking and feeling all the time. It's a struggle for me. Please understand that this decision is not impulsive. I am not choosing to end my life because of any situation at hand. I simply feel worn out, depleted. And yes, there are so many things that make me happy. My relationship with you is at the top of the list. You are extraordinary. Ultimately, the pain I feel takes over every time. I've used coping skills, but I must be missing something, because life shouldn't just be something to cope with. I hope you know how much I love and care about you. I know that you do. You are always my favorite. I miss you already. Love, Mallory. What What do you think or feel as you as you read that? 
it's devastating every time I read it. Um, How many times do you think you've read it? Probably about 10 since Mallory died. And each time it's just as devastating. I was in the house when she wrote the letter. I felt it was very important to include it at the beginning of my book. And my daughter, as I explain in one of the first letters in the book, Paul, popped her head out of her door the night before she took her life and asked me how to spell the word extraordinary. I was helping her spell check her suicide note to me, and I had no idea. Well, I'm, there's so many things reading that book that um, are so moving and um, they just kind of leave you breathless. Um, why, why did you write the book? I think I had a couple of reasons. My, my first reason probably was a very selfish one. I was so beside myself after my only child took her life that one of the only ways I could cope in the immediate aftermath of Mallory's death was to write to her. I knew she wouldn't be writing back, but she and I wrote letters over the years at different times in her life, and it was just a way of expressing some of what I was feeling. And as I started to write more and more, it occurred to me that some of her other loved ones so devastated by her tragic death might also be helped by having an opportunity both to write a letter to her and then perhaps contributing to a book of letters that we could share with other people. My prayer and my hope was and still is that this book can show readers how interconnected all of our lives are, that it can show readers that every life is precious, every life matters, and that by building a kinder, wiser, more compassionate world, we can help one another, not just reduce the stigma of mental illness and the shame, but help save lives. Forgive me if this sounds like a dickish thing to ask. Do you think if Mallory had read the book, it would have changed her mind? What a great question. I think it could have, but I also think by the time Mallory took her life, there were so many things that had compiled in terms of stresses upon her, things I didn't understand, things her treatment providers and other loved ones didn't understand about what was causing her to suffer. I'm not sure, but, but I'm touched that you asked the question. It's, it's very compelling to me. And, uh, and ultimately, I don't think the answer to it matters because we've got to give it a shot. We've got to, we've, you know, I commend you for um, writing that in the, in, in the hopes that, you know, obviously to, to help you deal with your own pain, but in the hopes that um, some person might read that and realize that they're not as isolated and disconnected as they, they think they are. Um, that is the hope, and I, I can share with you that the book is, has been used by uh, guidance counselors from middle school through college, 
And I have a colleague uh, in another part of the country who's telling me that he uh, offers the book to suicidal clients or people who've made a suicide attempt. And he's hearing a lot of feedback from many of those clients that the book uh, helped them turn a corner as they realized how they would impact loved ones if they really did complete suicide. So the book is being used as a suicide prevention tool I couldn't be happier, and yet I must admit to you and to your listeners, it's very bittersweet. I would have liked to make that difference for my child. Would you mind reading a a couple more excerpts from it? Not at all. Do you have some favorite parts? Um, The beginning, uh, especially, of the, the book, I think your first letter to her. Sure. I'm a little jealous that you don't need reading glasses. I use glasses for far away. Finding my bearings here. Okay. All right. So I begin with a letter that I that I wrote to her on January 19th of the year she died. And she died on which day? January 4th. So okay. this was very very new in my grief. I was I was extremely shell-shocked when I wrote this. Dear Mallory, Fifteen days have passed since I arrived home from work to find that you had taken your own life. And fifteen days into my grief, I realize that I need to write to you. Unlike the months and years when we corresponded back and forth while you attended out-of-state treatment programs or the 21 days you traveled up one side of Australia and back down as a student ambassador, this time you will not be writing me back. I nonetheless have so much to say, so much to ask, and when I found myself speaking to you in the shower today, I knew I simply wasn't ready to stop talking to you. I talked to you for the better part of nine months while you were in utero. I talked to you when you were a pre-verbal newborn, and I listened to your babbles and cries. For 18 years, we've conversed, occasionally argued, laughed, and cried, you and I. In our letters, cards, and poems over the years, we've shared our deep love for one another, pieces of our personal journeys, chit-chat about friends, pets, and family, hopes, and dreams. Now my only dream is to have you back, to wake up from the nightmare that has become my life. But you said your final goodbye to me in a letter dated January 3rd, 2011, that Monday night sometime before or after we watched sitcoms on my bed, with our rabbit Misty resting in her hay box, you popped your head out from behind your bedroom door and asked me, Hey, Mom, how do you spell extraordinary? You were writing your goodbye letter to me, and I was naively helping you spell check it. Had I asked you what you were writing, would you have told me the truth? The tower of lies you built in the weeks and months before your death, and which can only become known to me now in pieces as I weep and sleuth my way through the remnants of your destroyed life, suggests that you were not willing to let me or anybody in, that the revelations of your secret downward spiraling world would not avail itself in sufficient time for anyone to save you. But again, a mother can dream. The morning after you wrote your goodbye letter to me, you said you had a sore throat 
and therefore you weren't going to school. You turned down my offer of throat coat tea, but you asked me to warm some potatoes I had roasted the evening before with garlic and olive oil. We sat together at the table, you eating your potatoes, and me drinking my, my decaf. I said, do you think this would taste good with yams instead of baking potatoes, Mel? I knew you had most recently been open to the idea of yams, minus the marshmallows and cranberry sauce, and you answered, Mm-hmm. I'll try making it with yams next time, but you already knew there wasn't going to be a next time for anything in this world for you. As I prepared for work an hour or so later, you said give me a hug. After we hugged in the short hallway in front of your room, I started for the front door and you said wait, hug me again. It would be the last time that I would ever see or touch you alive. At approximately 5 p.m. that evening, when I returned home from work with two small grocery bags, I knocked on your bedroom door, heard nothing, opened the door, and turned on your light. I found you dead. I screamed, and a neighbor, the kind woman next door, came running. Call 911, I implored her. Frantically, I pulled your lifeless body down onto the bed from the crouched position in which I found you, and I tried in vain to resuscitate you. I breathed and breathed into your mouth. Your eyes, inches from my own, were opened and lifeless. Your blue mouth hung open, and I, well, I was fired up on pure adrenaline and hysteria. Within minutes, 15 police officers and paramedics moved throughout our small home. I would later read in the police report that the paramedics pulled you onto the floor in your room so that they could work on you. One police officer was ordered by another to open the clean white envelope addressed in black ink and perfect penmanship to Mom, and with a pink heart sticker on the front. It lay visibly atop your desk. At some point later, as they wheeled your lifeless body on the gurney through our front door, a policeman told me that the letter would be given to me at the hospital after they entered it as evidence of your suicide. As I wept in the living room, my hands shook. Take me, I cried, looking upward at the ceiling. Take me and let my daughter live. But you had already made a bargain with God, and my vote was never even counted, not this time. As we waited for Erica to arrive, I remembered that from behind the love seat in the living room, Misty the Rabbit was hearing the commotion. I asked the police officer who stood with me there if I could please put her into the cage in my room while they worked on you, but the answer came back no. This could have been a crime scene for all they knew at this early stage. Hours later, after we left your remains at the hospital, and Uncle Ken and I returned in a stupor to our home. I cradled Misty for long stretches of time across my bare collarbone until her teeth chattered, but little good it did. Two days later, she would drop dead on her favorite patch of carpet between the living room window and the love seat, and what I would first notice on her small gray lifeless body in a nod to the last, of, last bit of you would be her mouth gone blue. Erica arrived just before the paramedics wheeled you out, and she and her boyfriend drove me to the hospital. I leapt from his car the moment Kenny pulled into a space in the parking lot, and Erica had to yank me back. Wrong entrance, sweetie, she said. Let's go this way. 
Within minutes, the female doctor and nurse entered, and they didn't need to speak. I looked at their faces. You were gone. When we went to you, you were covered up to your neck in a white sheet on a cold metal table. There was a tube in your mouth. The shock of this sight still courses through me fifteen days after your death, and it will become one of many flashbacks I will have for months and no doubt years to come. I sat beside you, stroking your long, soft hair, whispering occasionally to you, Oh, sweetheart. Your vacant eyes had frozen half-opened. I kissed your eyelid. Uncle Ken called Uncle Ron with the news. Disbelief was in the air. We were gagging on it. I would hear weeks later in a conversation with someone from the hospital that several emergency room workers wept about your death. The doctor who pronounced you dead has teenage children. Only the grief counselors were saying with their gentle faces, Yes, this is death and she is gone. Accept the change. But I didn't want to leave you or accept that you were gone. Can you understand that? We were there at the hospital for hours. Open your eyes, sweetheart, I kept murmuring, while looking at your lifeless body. Please open them. In 2007, I feared we'd lose you. Three serious suicide attempts is enough to push any parent over the edge. But then we gave you treatment, and you gave yourself a chance to turn things around. You worked hard. In August 2009, you graduated high school and came home. We moved to a two-bedroom home in a complex dotted with red brick walkways and three-story pine trees, wildlife and waterfalls. I hoped that nature so close at hand would do both of us some good. I bought peanuts in bulk at Costco, and you and I laughed often about the squirrels' daily feeding frenzies out on our patio. You started school, moving your way through the theater arts department. It was hard trying to make friends at a commuter school after being out of state and in treatment for nearly three years. But you tried. God knows you tried. Your heart ultimately broke in three places, and more than that, you felt ostracized. If only I had known how lonely you felt inside, but what you shared with your therapist, your two best friends, and me was an understatement and a sanitized one at that of the agonies you bore in silence. And I had no idea that you were teetering on death's doorstep for five long weeks before it welcomed you. I have puzzle pieces now, but it's too late to fully complete the picture of your secret life that helped to bury you. Did you leave me behind to tell the story? At approximately 10 p.m. that night, my phone rang. It was an organ donation center reminding me that you had signed up at the DMV back when you got your learner's permit to donate pieces of yourself in case of death. Could they take your pericardium, the skin from your back and thighs, your eyes, bones from your arms and legs, your heart valves? I was still so deeply submerged in shock. But others' lives and health were at stake here. At some point in the man's interview with me, he determined that your risky behavior during your 2008 runaway to Venice Beach eliminated you from the donation pool. Is it selfish and shameful of me to admit that when I discovered we could keep your remains fairly intact, I was relieved? You don't need to answer that, Mal. I just did. 
The day after you died, Uncle Ken and I started arranging for your burial. There would be a memorial service on Sunday, and we crossed our fingers that the coroner would release your remains in time. What a thing to hope for. Danielle's family visited late into the night, and Ashley came too. The girls combed through boxes of photographs for a photo montage. Your body went to its final resting place, wearing gray pants, socks, your favorite black vans, and your black-knit sweater with rows of beige Irish lace around the collar. That last item made me think about a year ago when you selected it at a clothing store, that your fashion taste might be changing. We all couldn't believe how young she looked, says the mortician, who's a mother of three and whose eyes filled with tears as I told her about you. I forgot to notify a lot of people about the memorial service, and still others I would not know how to connect with for months. It wasn't for lack of desire. Pure and simple I was, I believe, in those first days after your death, disassociated from myself as well as from the world around me. A dragging zombie, I did things by rote. Clean the litter box, feed the cats, breathe, sip water. Did I call your former voice teacher already to tell her you were dead? Was it Wednesday? Did I care? On Sunday morning, nearly 200 people sat in the chapel. Photo montage images of your 18 years of life flashed across the screen to the sound of Life is Beautiful by Vega 4. And if you are wondering why I did not linger at your casket, after I placed the red rose on top of it while everyone watched, first I was afraid that if I stayed there longer I might burst into tears, embarrassing myself and further devastating the already shell-shocked crowd. And honestly, I also feared that I might try to climb inside the coffin with you. Grace, if I showed any microscopic measure of it that day, clung to me by a mere frayed thread. You carefully planned your death around my work schedule. Your clothes hung neatly in your closet. You shut off your phone, discarded most of your schoolwork. Thankfully, you left your journals, the cards, letters, and poems we exchanged, poems and other writings you completed in high school and college, notes to and from the Tooth Fairy, some correspondence to and from friends, photo albums I made you for your 15th birthday, dozens of loose pictures of you smiling and mugging for the camera in happier times, and the school projects you proudly brought home from elementary school. Jewelry, DVDs, and CDs, including your favorites, Rent, Juno, and Taylor Swift. Three or four days after you died, I was sitting on the floor in your room, and I saw on the carpet about three feet from where you died on your bed the flat gold charm with the pale pink flower and the words I love you that I had given you on a gold chain about a year and a half earlier. Were you wearing it when the paramedics pulled you onto the floor? Things, mementos, pieces of you. Love, Mom. Thank you for reading that. The thing that strikes me you know, as I read the book is I... I wonder how much weight of the world Mallory took on herself she seems like she seems like she was so concerned about everybody and their feelings and 
like she couldn't, almost like she couldn't find a way to comfort herself. I think that's true. I think that's true. And I, you know, she had a sensitive mom. The aftermath of Mallory's tragic death has been a colossal learning experience for me. I had lots of therapy before Mallory died, but needless to say, this tragic loss has taken me to a whole new level with my self-discovery, as it must, as it should. And um, what you just described about my daughter is definitely something that I would relate to as a mother. I, you know, you you hear so often, it's it's quite cliche that kids do what their parents do much more than they do what their parents say. And uh, clearly, I can look back and think of how many times I would say to my child, you're here to live a life of your dreams. You're here to be happy, to have fun, uh, to be resilient. But um, sometimes I had trouble taking my own medicine. That's a hard pill to swallow in the aftermath of Mallory's tragic death, but it's a colossal learning experience. What... Uh, one of the things you describe in the book is um, you second-guessing yourself and feeling like you failed her. Um, talk about that. I don't think you can lose a loved one to so- to suicide, especially losing a child to suicide, without um, confronting your failures, your mistakes, your blind spots, your limits as a parent. Um, I believe as a human being and a clinician that suicide is a complicated event. Um, I don't know that it's ever due to one thing. My experience is that it's more a a number of stressors compiling upon a person's soul to the point where they just can't take it anymore. Um, Mallory struggled with drug abuse in the end of her life. I think there were definitely some failures on the part of uh, her treatment team who treated her uh, before she died, some things they didn't understand and see. There were certainly some limits and blind spots on my part, which I now know, you know, hindsight being 2020, there's Mm -hmm. another cliche. Um, She experienced bullying as a child. She experienced ostracism as a teenager. Um, She was very vulnerable and you know she was she seemed like a very resilient child for the better part of the first 14 years of her life very effervescent full of life loving sensitive but quite resilient and you know the teenage years hit and we always hear about how difficult those can be and it seems like once she started high school a number of stressors converged and led to her unraveling And when I finally realized um, how much she was suffering, we started treatment immediately. But outpatient treatment was not successful. And um, what was the treatment for? For she was diagnosed with uh, major depression and generalized anxiety disorder. And uh, she had some very good therapists working with her, and she was on tried on some antidepressant medication. However, she then made three very serious suicide attempts. And following the third lethal suicide attempt, I was afraid that I would come home one day and find my daughter dead. So in an attempt to save her life, after doing a lot of research on the Internet, I flew with Mallory to Utah 
in April of 2007 and enrolled her in a therapeutic boarding school. She spent the next few years in several therapeutic boarding schools out of state, uh, seemed to do very well, and uh, came home once in 08, and it was very hard for her. We were worried about how she would do, and she didn't do well, so we had to take her back. And she graduated high school in one of those therapeutic boarding schools in uh, 09, summer of 09, came home, and we tried to make a fresh start with outpatient therapy here, a new home and a new community. She began Santa Monica College, um, and we were very hopeful at the time. The The decision to have her go to a therapeutic boarding school what what were the reasons for that because it would be in, in, intensive and it would be safe what 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 were what was her initial uh feeling about it when you broached the subject well i think she had the reaction that i would expect any teenager to have which is how could you possibly think of taking me somewhere away from home where i can't live at home and i'm away from friends i'm away from family and uh, I struggled with some guilt about it myself, but I had such terror of her ending her life. And after three serious suicide attempts, I couldn't think of a more viable choice. She had an outpatient treatment team willing to work with her here, but I was too scared. And... um so she was unhappy about it. It was difficult for us both, but I felt at the time it was needed. Do you, do you still feel that way, or do you regret it, or is that a thing that's... That isn't one of my regrets, okay. no. I I think she actually, I think it was very hard for her and for me both to have her away from home. It was so difficult, actually, but I think it helped her. I can't imagine what it's got to be like with a... A child that has attempted suicide three times, how impossible it must have been for you to ever relax, to ever let your guard down, and your mind must have been spinning constantly. Yes, to all of that. Absolutely. It was... It was I can't think of anything more terrifying. It's your worst nightmare as a parent that something would happen to your child. What have you learned? What are the, you know, I, I always say that even the worst, most painful things that happen, there are still moments of beauty Sur surrounding it, inside it, uh, maybe in the aftermath of it. Talk about some of the moments of beauty inside or outside of this terrible thing? Moments of beauty that I've been able to access since Mallory died. Yeah. And, and by the way, this is not me spinning it saying, well, ultimately it's a good thing that this happened. That uh, I just want to make that clear. When I sit down to reflect on, write about, and remember 14 years of unbridled joy, her adorable sense of humor, um, 
a mother-daughter bond which allowed us to be so silly and goofy, our crazy menagerie of pets at home, so many happy, happy memories before Mallory became ill, and both she and our family just spiraled out of control. So the beauty uh, the beauty comes largely from re- reminiscing about her precious life and my deep gratitude in having had the privilege of being her mother. And also, be- the word use feels heavy-handed, but I'll say it, being able to use this tragedy to teach, inspire, and touch other people. I've I've connected with a lot of my teenage clients and their parents around this story and adult clients as well and people I meet in my personal life and um I'm always moved and touched and and deeply grateful when I hear that the story of Mallory has an impact for good on somebody mm-hmm. so that's the beauty. Yeah, I you know I always think of the parents of the child who you know died in some accident that could have been prevented and then the parents devote their life towards raising awareness on something and you hear them interviewed and uh they say that you know in the aftermath of this terrible thing has been this tremendous sense of purpose and a focusing of their life and obviously they would trade it all in to get their child back but um and i think of uh i think of to me, one of the best examples of how there can be beauty um, in things that are terrible is when you heard stories um, during the Holocaust where one person would give another person their only piece of bread because they felt that they needed it more, or they would sing songs yes. uh, at night and they would laugh and because they had to, because they had to find something to, to laugh about. And those, to me, are... Um, I cling. I cling to those, to those things when times are bad, and and I'm just riding. And you know, I was sharing with you as as we were walking up the stairs that I I had a really brutal couple of months coming off a drug, and the listeners are familiar with that. But during that time, I just kind of rode the storm out, and and I just exp- I, that's where experience can really save your life mm-hmm. having having weathered enough storms um you get the insight that things aren't going to be that way forever you know yes and whatever someone's spiritual or religious beliefs may or may not be there's a phrase that I see now and again pop up on my Facebook feed that always touches me so deeply. It says we are all just walking each other home. You know, if it's true that our time here on this planet is a temporary way station, granted, hopefully it's a very joyful one and mm-hmm. lots of happiness and, and fun and great stuff can be part of it, but but... What if there's a bigger picture to our experiences? I tend to believe in my better moments that there is a bigger picture. I don't think I'm going to see it in its entirety in my mortal life here, but I know that it exists. And I think there's a part of all of us that knows there's a bigger picture to the things that happen to us and 
that's what I reach for. That's what I invite others in the world to reach for. There's so much power uh, that comes out of us coming together in love and non-judgment and a wish to know better and do better and learn the lessons of horrific and sometimes preventable tragedies. Um, there is great good that can come out of horror. And there must be. We, we must never stop looking for it. How do you stop yourself from playing the what-if game? I would imagine that had to have been in the, in the year, the first year after it. It must have absolutely consumed you. Shoulda, coulda, woulda. You bet. What What are the, some of the shoulda, coulda, wouldas? Um, I, I should have handled a lot of things differently in the final 15, uh, 15 to 18 months of Mallory's life. I should have been stronger as a mom. I should have been more aware. Stronger how as a mom? Um, Mallory needed uh, structure and boundaries and a bit of what I'll loosely refer to in the vernacular as tough love. Uh, and I was a parent who much preferred to be kind and soft and sweet, having to do with some of my own experiences in the opposite direction as a kid. And it wasn't what Mallory needed. You feel like you maybe enabled her? Leave out the maybe. Okay. I totally enabled her and others enabled Mallory and it harmed her. It absolutely harmed her. There were risk factors Mallory did not need to be burdened with towards the last few years of her life, yet she was. Um, how, how, what do you mean? Well, I, you know, she was struggling with drugs. She, Mallory was had a, had a secret struggle with drug abuse. Mm -hmm. She was taking diet pills for the last four months of her life. And uh, I had wanted her to go through a outpatient psychoeducational program for substance abuse, and I allowed someone to talk me out of it. It was a terrible mistake. Would she have? Would she be here today if she had gone through the program? I think there's at least a good chance. You know, um, as far as you know, how intense are were those woulda, shoulda, couldas? I think for anybody, that's one of the ways that a loss by suicide is so unique and so much more painful than losses for other reasons, is that the the loved ones left behind just pummel themselves um, with coulda, woulda, shouldas, and. You know, we are human, and one of the themes that I develop over and over again in my memoir is the interconnectedness of life. I, I believe that we are all influencing one another all the time, and I think most of us mean well, and even when we mean well, we have blind spots, we have limits, we have egos that sometimes get in the way of our better judgment. And tragedies like this have the potential to awaken us to a deeper understanding about ourselves and our world. That's what I'm reaching for now. Uh, you raised her as a single parent. I did. Um, describe for me again. I know. I know you mentioned it in the in the book. Um, her father was a donor. Mallory was born of of. Um, Artificial insemination. Okay. Yes. Yes. And, and uh, did she know her father? She didn't. She didn't. And and one of my 
regrets is that uh, Mallory has donor siblings all over the country, I had learned. And I was talking with her uh, not shortly before she died, but in, in the year and a half or so before she died about possibly taking a trip back east to meet some of them. That was a hope I had for her. There's a donor sibling registry. I told her about it. I said, when you turn 18, you can go on yourself. You can register and start to connect with siblings. Uh, several of the donor siblings actually contributed letters to the Dear Mallory book, and although I haven't met any of them face-to-face, -face, I hope to someday. They were very moved by by her death, even though they never had the opportunity to meet her. It impacted them very deeply. What are the myths or the, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of the listener uh, who is listening right now what do they think they know about losing a loved one to suicide that might be incorrect or do they not know about at all i think the first thing i'd want to say to you and to your listeners about that is is a broader comment about grief in general and it's especially poignant with regard to loss from, from suicide, and that is that there is no one way that a person grieves. When I was in college, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross talked about the five stages of grief, and it's classic, and it may be that for a lot of people that's exactly how grief grow, goes, but mm -hmm. for a lot of the clients I work with who are dealing with grief, I remind them that everybody grieves in their own unique way. Um, there's no right way as long as one is processing and acknowledging the feelings. It, it often feels like a roller coaster. Some people might disagree with me. I, I think for myself, uh, suicide loss is something I'll never get over. You come to live with it. You find a way, I think, to be in the world with greater ease. But there is a unique pain that survivors of suicide loss know about that's very that's very commonly felt among many of them. We talk about it in gatherings and get-togethers. It just feels different. There's more stigma. There's more shame. There's more coulda, woulda, shouldas. I imagine as a parent especially because so often the cliche is you go to, you know, when the kid's a troublemaker or, you know, the kid has problems, you think, well, what, you know, it must be the parent's fault. Yeah. Um, did you feel in the in the wake of it, that people were going to look at you and think, well, clearly her mother failed her. You know, those thoughts sometimes came to my mind rather fleetingly. The bigger issue for me has been, continues to be, my own wish to understand, not in a self-flagellating kind of way. That's a bad habit I've had from way back when, but Part of what Mallory's suicide has actually helped me with, ironically, is learning how to love myself more fully. And so in a slightly more self-loving way, it happens in baby steps, I'm, I've really been on this journey, Paul, of trying to understand my role. My role interacted with other people's roles. My role in terms of failing Mallory also was impacted by society. We breathe life or death into our relationships. There are many kinds of life 
There are people walking around who feel dead inside. There are people who've been survivors of horrific trauma who learn to survive in in terrible childhoods. They train themselves to deaden parts of their personality that they feel would either put them or someone they love in harm's way or would not be acceptable. You know, there's death and then there's death. There's life and death. And... um, I think this this terrible tragedy uh, has created for me my legacy. You alluded before mm-hmm. in in this interview to people who find their calling through great adversity, and this is not a calling, needless to say, that I would have ever chosen. But here it is, and what will I do? So, did you go to uh, uh, some type of grief support? Talk about that. Talk about that process and what you got out of it. Sure, sure. Was it something you instantly said, I'm going to go to this because I'm going to take my own advice. I would advise myself as a client to do this. So she's nodding her head yes. Yes. I was very eager to start that soon. And fortunately, D.D. Hirsch Community Mental Health Center in Culver City has satellite meetings all over Southern California for their survivors after suicide program. It's actually a wonderful program. It's eight weeks, and it's an hour and a half meeting every week. It's co-led by a licensed therapist and a fellow survivor who's been through the program so that the co-leader of the group has also come through suicide loss themselves. Many of the therapists who co-lead the group have lost loved ones to suicide. In the very least, they're very well-trained in terms of grief and loss. And that group was tremendous. It was very hard. I'm not going to lie to you. I, I sometimes had to drag myself kicking and screaming on the inside. But you'd come to the group, and there was reading material on the chair. I would go home and devour that reading material. Some of it didn't have a lot of relevance to me, but oftentimes it did. I hung on every word. Anything I could get to help me understand this, especially in the immediate aftermath of such a catastrophic loss, I reached for. And therapy, ongoing therapy, has been a very critical part of my recovery. Uh, Would it be fair to say that part of the healing was intellectual and part of it was... um learning to find comfort in the reality of what today is like for you? Yes. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. It is a new normal. It is a new normal. My life will always be different, and it should be. Did you feel terrible the first time you, you found yourself experiencing joy after? Or, di- or did you catch yourself and think, I don't have the right to feel happy? I definitely, I definitely struggled with a lot of things that might even seem silly to someone who hasn't lost a loved one to suicide. I was writing a a short uh, creative nonfiction piece about Mallory's death, and I made reference towards the end of that piece to feeling guilty for sipping a cup of tea. So I think that would be an affirmative to your question. Why would you feel guilty for sipping a cup of tea? I'll tell you, because my loved one can't have tea. Wow. My loved one cannot breathe. You know, 
people who have post-traumatic stress disorder, which I have, which a lot of survivors of suicide loss struggle with and suffer from, you know, there are often more common triggers that people can imagine. But for a loved one who's lost somebody to suicide, the triggers can be anything. I have been triggered, as I just mentioned to you, by knowing that other people are breathing, not that I begrudge anybody breath. But I think, oh, she can't. I'm triggered by the sweet sounds of children's voices with their parents outside my bedroom window. I'm triggered sometimes by seeing a pregnant woman. Things that you you might not think of. It must be everywhere. It e- is everywhere. And, and the places you drive to. It must be, have you thought of moving away just to have fewer fewer triggers i mean you go to the mall that you went with her how that must have been excruciating the first time you went um yeah going going back to places i was with her has been tough one of mallory's best friends and i as an experiment tried to visit a restaurant that mallory had loved and we you know a lot of people who've lost loved ones to suicide and other manner of death sometimes will go on the person's birthday or hanukkah or christmas and go to their favorite restaurant we didn't enjoy ourselves it was not a positive experience for us and it's interesting were you trying to have it be a positive experience we were wondering if it might be Mm-hmm. But the fact that she couldn't sit there and enjoy herself made it pretty unenjoyable. We kind of struggled through it for one another, but but I wouldn't do that again. I had to go to a street fair in Hermosa Beach today. I was actually doing some research for my book because that's an outing that Mallory and I took many times through the years. We had a great time at this street fair, and I had to refresh my memory about a lot of the sights and smells and... Uh, I was nervous about going, but I set it up in a way that I think it was okay. I actually went an hour earlier than the street fair opened, so I missed a lot of the crowds. There were lots of kids and families around me. It was painful. When I saw the kettle corn she loved, when I saw the stand with the frozen lemonade that she loved, and the kitty section with the rides she liked when she was a little girl, or the the stall that had the handmade painted clothing that I used to buy for her, it was very painful, um, but telling this story is something that gives me tremendous hope. My prayer is that it can help other people. Well, I, I was incredibly moved by by the book. Um, Thank you. I was sh- sharing uh, with Lisa that I re- was reading it uh, over a couple of days span at my favorite coffee shop, and I would just be tears running down my face thinking i kind of hope that nobody i know uh comes walking by right now you know not not that crying is a bad thing but in the middle of a coffee shop at noon it it i don't know it felt so intimate it felt so intimate and uh i really um looked forward to getting to talk to you more about this because it's something until I started reading your book and reading the details, you know, especially that your, your letter to her, your first letter to her, I just went, wow, there are so many details that I never stopped it because I haven't, um, well, I lost a friend, um, to suicide in 2000. Um, but it it was it wasn't like a best friend it was it was a good friend um and there was certainly a a, a process of of grieving but not as if it were a sister sure. or 
that know, makes sense. a wife or um, a daughter. Yeah. And I was just struck by just the breadth of the experience, both in detail and emotion. And um, I just think you... you um, are really helping a lot of people understand something that is, um, I think, often put into kind of a little corner of we know what this is about. And, um, yeah, I just want to thank you for for writing a beautiful book that I'm sure is helping people. That is so kind of you. Thank you very much. And, you know, as I listen to you say those lovely, kind words – it triggers the the understanding in me and that a lot of us have about how many times when people are in a dark place of despair, and everyone has a dark place that they can go to sometimes of different intensities, sometimes in a dark place, it can be very easy for us to forget mm-hmm. how much we mean to other people. You know, when you're not feeling good about yourself, I know this about me, those are times when it's a little more difficult to take in love and light and a little easier to let those compliments that others give you kind of fall off your back. But the truth is, again, we are so interconnected. We we impact one another in ways we really can't fathom. And my hope is that at least some of the people who take a look at the Dear Mallory book will maybe stop and think again because you know, when you're suicidally depressed, you enter this tunnel vision place with your thinking where you feel so incredibly alone and cynical, um, and cynical, bitter, disappointed, devastated, heartbroken. And this book is my my way of saying you do matter. We must we must never make light of somebody's suffering and tell them what to feel or what not to feel. But. We matter to other people sometimes in ways we just can't fathom. Yeah, my hope is is that um, I, I've read so many um, surveys that people take on the website, so many surveys of people who were deeply scarred by bullying uh, as children. And my my hope is, is that as a society, we're becoming more informed about um, how how really damaging that uh, that can be. Yes. And it takes place not just on the schoolyard, but there's bullying and ostracism that happens among adults as well. There's organizational bullying. Especially we, at work. We have to become kinder to one another because we just never know. You know, most people clean up good and can sort of put on their social face, go to work, do what they're asked to do, walk the dog, etc., and you just never know what pain someone may be carrying around inside. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for uh, coming and uh, sharing your life. And um, I think anybody who listens um, to this episode can't help but walk away with a greater understanding of the breadth of um the experience of the survivor. So thank you for that. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. Many, many thanks to uh, to Lisa. Uh, before I take it out with a gigantic stack of surveys, um, 
you may, you know, there are so many surveys right now that you may just want to go ahead and unsubscribe to the podcast. That that's my prediction. Is uh, this is going to be what sinks me? Not the comments from last week. Uh, just the waterfall of. <laughs> I don't even, I can't finish the sentence. Um, Before I take it out with these surveys, I want to uh, remind you that there are a couple of different ways that you can support the podcast. If you feel so inclined, you can support us financially by going to the website mentalpod.com and making either a one-time PayPal donation or my favorite, a recurring monthly donation. You can sign up for as little as five bucks a month. And that's really what helps keep the podcast going at, at, uh, it's, extremely important and uh we can always use uh more donors and um I, it's simple to set up and uh it means the world to me you can also uh support us financially by shopping through our search portal when you're going to buy something at Amazon and then they'll give us a couple of nickels doesn't cost you anything and uh you can support us non-financially by going to iTunes writing a nice review giving us a good rating uh, and spreading the word about the podcast through social media. That really, really helps. Um, let's get to the surveys. This is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by uh, Bipolar Kitty. And about her anxiety, she writes, Trapped in saran wrap, my face is going numb. My hands are going numb. I struggle to move, struggle to breathe. Oh God, I'm dying. Snapshot from her life. I never want to leave the comfort of my bed. I hate the world, but what a great day it's going to be. I can accomplish so much, except I'm a pathetic loser who can't do anything right. Did I turn off the stove? Better drive the 45 minutes back home to check. Wow, I'm so grateful for everything I have and all the wonderful people I know. Oh God, there are too many people surrounding me. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. Can't breathe. Heart's pounding. I think I will take on 20 projects I will never finish. I'm getting so much done. Fingernails being torn off. Dead kittens. Murder. Get out of my head. I hate these thoughts. Stop. I'm so worthless. I think I will wrap up in my blankie and never come out again. Thank you for that peek inside your your brain. This is the uh, same survey filled out by a woman who calls herself too fat to function. She writes, I keep eating to fill a hole that I didn't know until recently existed. My stomach hurts, but I'd rather feel a pain in my gut than the pain in my heart remembering sexual abuse that is recently coming to the surface. Little Little Debbie is my new BFF. Snapshot from her life. At my father's funeral, after he committed suicide, my grandmother suggested that if I'd been a better daughter, he wouldn't have done it. I was 16. There's always a moment on the podcast that just leaves your jaw open. Uh, same survey filled out by Blackbird, and she writes about her depression, lethargic. I'm not tired. I just don't want to do anything until I feel better, which I never do. About her anorexia, I feel skinnier when I feel hungry. Um, I'm I'm OCD about relationships. Someone is sitting on my chest. I literally cannot function even basic tasks until whatever is on my mind is settled and taken care of. I feel completely debilitated until my partner and I make up. I am compelled to ask every day if we are okay because I'm obsessed with the idea that we are not. About her codependency, it is utterly devastating to disappoint my mom. I'd rather hide everything or go without than have her feel disappointment in me. 
snapshot from her life. The issues I have with my girlfriend always happen in sequence. She says or does something completely small or innocuous, but my fear of abandonment and anxiety tells me it's more. So I ask for reaffirmation. She feels it's me tearing her down and forbidding her from saying things, and so she closes up and shuts down. The more she pulls away, the harder I cling. She goes to bed at 7 p.m. because she works early and she lives 500 miles away from me. So when she shuts down and just goes to bed while our argument, which should never have been an argument, it was only something small I felt insecure about, is unsettled, I am up for many more hours since I go to bed around 11 or midnight and it's absolute torture. I feel like I can't breathe. I scream. I cry. I think of ways I can die. My anxiety makes me think that if it's not solved right now, it never will be. And I can't function in anything else until she and I have made up. That sounds like love addiction, too. This is from uh, Shame and Secret Survey. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself Do You Even Life? And uh, she's straight. She's in her 20s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, um, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Uh, Not sure if she's been physically or emotionally abused. She writes, after my mom found out about what my dad did, uh, one of my aunts called the cops. Knowing that the cops would interrogate my siblings, uh, brother and sister, my dad told us, you can tell the police what happened, but you should know that you will get sent to foster care. The three of you will get separated, and you will probably never see each other again. Your mom will probably go to jail for neglecting you. We believed him and lied to the police. I still feel like an idiot for believing what he said. When my parents separated, my mom constantly told me that I was the only reason why she wasn't killing herself. She would say things along the lines of, you're keeping me alive, and I would be dead if you weren't my child. I thus felt I always had to pretend I was happy around her because I didn't want to trouble her with what was troubling me. Yes, that is emotional abuse. That is at the top of the mountain of emotional abuse. That is so uh, that is so sickly genius, such a sickly genius way of telling the child to not have needs. You know, it's camouflaged as you mean so much to me, but what it really does is say, you mean so little to me. Because that's what it does. Because then you can't go to your your parent with any problems. Um, and I'm not sure that's a conscious thing on your mom's part. But and obviously, um, what your dad said. You know, your dad who was molesting you, um, leaving it up to you. Uh, you yes. Oh my God, emotional abuse of the highest order. Um, any positive experience with the abusers? My dad would always, uh, my dad always bought me the most expensive birthday or Christmas gifts. My siblings would point it out to me, but I would just shrug it off. Throughout my childhood, I felt like my dad constantly tried to buy my love. I was the only one in the family who ever stood up to him or put a name to the things he did. I have a functional relationship with my dad now, at arm's length, I'd say, but I still have moments when I question his feelings and intentions towards me. I can't help but think he's still trying to buy my love or is trying to make up for what he did every time he does something positive. 
darkest secrets. My boyfriend doesn't know that my dad was the person who molested me. I don't know whether to tell him or not. If you, I think if your boyfriend is, is, is somebody who's safe, um, I think absolutely. Um, anyway, uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I hardly fantasize. I'm open with my boyfriend about anything I want to try, and we end up trying whatever it is. I end up feeling light every time I open up to him about anything regarding my sexuality. He is the first guy I have ever truly connected with, and I'm able to actually enjoy sex. That's beautiful. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I wish you could have let me be a child for at least a little longer. Self-explanatory. Yeah, that—that that is uh, that's one of those sentences that just goes right through you. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish there weren't any stigmas around mental illness. I'm convinced there would be a lot less animosity in this world if we all tried to listen and understand each other. Have you shared these things with others? The few times I have shared that I was molested, every single person has then shared about having had something similar happen. I feel nothing but love towards the people I have shared these things with, but it also makes me utterly jaded that this happens over and over. How do you feel after writing these things down? Typing this out brought my heart rate up, but I needed the cardio, so it's all good. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I nor anyone else can reiterate it enough. There is help out there. I urge you to advocate for yourself. If you don't receive the help you need, please keep fighting for it. Help is there. I don't know a lot of things, but I at least know that. I was terrified of going into therapy and later sharing in group, but it ended up stopping me from killing myself. Thank you so much, and I'm so glad that you you fought for yourself. This is a shame and se- and this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a woman who calls herself Cezanne five four three, or says Anne. I'm not sure how you're supposed to pronounce it. Um, about her depression, uh, depression feels like being physically weighed down by all the hopes and dreams I'll never accomplish. That is a great one. Oh my god. Um, and then a snapshot from uh, her life. I am tailoring my entire life and career around a single sentence I uttered over a decade ago. My father was an alcoholic, not just a heavy drinker, a full case of Budweiser daily on top of withdrawal seizures type of drinker. I was terrified of him because of his seizures and avoided him at all costs. This avoidance went on for five years before he passed away from blunt force trauma to the chest. He had a seizure, fell down the basement stairs, and hit his sternum against the railing. Just hours before his death, I yelled at him. I had built up such anger and bitterness towards him over the five-year period that I had to tell him how horrible he was, how he was destroying our family. The last thing I said to my father is, I hate you. He died only hours after our argument. He died over a decade ago, and I've dealt with his death by becoming an addiction counselor. I subconsciously think if I can help just one alcoholic father, my father will somehow forgive me for all the cruel things I said to him before he died. Wow, that is heavy. And, um, you know, I would just say to you, um, I don't think you need any, any forgiveness. You were reacting how a child would react to a parent who was abusively neglectful um, and in their addiction. And um, 
and I think it's awesome that you're an addiction counselor. Um, but um, I hope you're doing it for ultimately for for yourself and what and what you get out of it. But I'm sure it's very I'm sure it's very gratifying. Shout out, Paul. Uh, this is a shame and secret survey filled out by uh, somebody who is uh, a gender. Um, born male-bodied and um, describes them, uh, uses the name shame-escaping sociopath with a Spider-Man complex. Um, they are uh, asexual, uh, pan-romantic asexual uh, in their 20s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Oh, uh, raised in an environment that was pretty dysfunctional. I think I said that already. Um, some stuff happened, but I don't don't know if it counts. I've repressed so much of my childhood and remember my stepfather and some random men my mother slept with walking around without clothing. They would yell at me for being out of my room and slapping my mother on the ass with some hyper-masculine chuckle. I felt so much resentment. Uh, with them, so much hatred towards them, so much like I hated uh, I had slash have a penis like they do. I feel so confused because that is my first memory of what sex is. Now all I see is how sexualized our culture is, and I am not. I am ace, which means asexual. Um, they've been uh, physically abused and emotionally abused. I was beaten in the form of excessive physical punishment. My stepfather would laugh as he hit me with a belt. I felt fondled so often uh, before he threw me off his lap. I was slapped regularly for, quote, looking at things or people wrong. I was shamed mercilessly for being a nurturing, quote, boy who took care of my little sisters and hated sports, a nerd who didn't play with other kids who hurt me. I would crawl into the lap of random men who were in my house because I wanted to feel loved, even though they would yell at me as they shoved me onto the floor. I truly feel emotionally abused by my current partner who says she is ashamed of my asexuality and agender identity. She is so resentful of my military deployments, leaving her home alone with our child. She is so resentful of me not getting a job and driving us further into debt with professional school. I feel like nobody should or could ever love me and like I deserve how I am treated. Any positive experience with your abusers? One of my stepfathers made money and it was the first time in my childhood we were not drastically below the poverty line. I felt so grateful for everything he did despite his emotional distance and how my mother seemed uh, that we didn't exist anymore as she developed a lot of hobbies and resentfully hated us kids as she doted on the quote man of the house. Darkest thoughts. I often feel like I live life like my body is a puppet and my invisible hands marionette everyone I come in contact with. Like my feelings are not my own, but entirely a projection of whomever I come in contact with. I dove into the field of psychology and some weird need to fix myself. And the more I learn, the bigger I feel the monster that is my sociopathy grows. Similar to the Dexter character on TV, I encountered a mentor who told me that with great power comes great responsibility, probably stolen from Spider-Man. I feel like I can truly look at someone and become so integrated into their being that I could rip them apart or gain satisfaction from helping them fix themselves. Darkest Secrets I use conducting therapy as a type of sociopathic high. 
feeling like all my demons are snakes wrapped around my body that beckon to the demons in my clients. I go through a ritual cleansing in my mind of helping them slaughter and accept their demons while clinging to my own as if there were a shield from my own feelings. If I didn't honestly, spiritually, and metaphysically feel like I did true good with my clients, um, I get so many referrals from my colleagues who have spent many, many years uh, with clients they cannot help. I have never experienced not being able to feel I have never experienced not being able to understand someone and help them. I feel guilty for my ego knowing there is no way I can truly be that good. I feel resentful as well as incredibly fulfilled when clients terminate therapy and give me good feedback. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I am asexual and have never felt sexually attracted. I feel kink slash BDSM domination is the closest description of my fantasy. I want to be restrained and violated in my anus with my penis crushed and my breasts whipped and ripped with tacks. I want to be humiliated and laughed at as I am asphyxiated until I black out. This is not for sex, but I feel like it would be so visceral, so much of a release, it is typically associated with sex. Sharing this makes the shame snakes on my body slither around and snap out, trying to protect me from my vulnerability. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I want to say that I am here. I am real. You have never seen me, but I am here behind this huge pile of shame and scars. I am here and I just want to be seen and loved. And my greatest fear in life is that I am not worthy of being loved. I try uh, too hard to put on a good face and be so accomplished in life, but it all means nothing to me, like I am continually adding to a facade that protects them from the real me. What if anything do you wish for? I want to be seen, just seen as if it would legitimize my entire existence to be seen once in my entire life. Have you shared these things with others? I've shared some of my shame from childhood with my mother, and she disowned me. I shared some with my spouse and feel like she uses it against me. How do you feel after writing these things down? Sad and lighter, and like I desperately want to dive into some randomly acquired self-deprecating addiction. <laughs> Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I would like to share my experiences in tandem with anyone, just anyone who wants nothing from me, who at the end will hold me and cry with me. I don't have anyone like that, and I honestly don't feel in my heart of hearts that I ever will. I would like to say that you can, and I think a support group would be a perfect place to, to find that. Um, and I just want to say that we see you, and we hear you, and we feel you, and I hope if you hear this that you feel heard and um and know that we uh that was very moving. Thank you for sharing that. This is from the uh struggle in a sentence survey filled out by Derek. Uh, about his depression, he writes, My major depression feels like I am wearing a weighted blanket, a constant reminder that I am being pushed down. But at the same time, there is a mild, shameful comfort in it. Oh, that is so accurate. I always feel like like my depression is like um, like really shitty weather. But the things that bring me comfort when I'm depressed, which are usually extremely isolating, is just like a, a cabin that 
in that storm, but there's a lot of, uh, you know, it's like a drafty cabin that isn't very well stocked, but it's better than being out in the storm. Uh, snapshot from your life. I don't know if I am isolating myself on purpose or just viciously defending myself from the people in my life who don't understand my depression and anxiety. My relationships are suffering just as much as I am. Well, I don't think isolation has ever made anything better, but God, it just seems like so comforting when we're in that place. I do it all the time. This is um shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Warrior Wounds. She is gay. She's in her 30s. She was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. She's never been sexually abused. Uh, she's been emotionally abused. My first girlfriend was emotionally abusive. She was the first person I ever had sex with. And after losing my virginity to her, she berated me for taking too long to orgasm because I wore her arm out. Another time after we'd had sex, I told her something vulnerable about myself and she laughed at it, then said I was being too sensitive when I got upset. In general, she would yell at me, accuse me of doing things I hadn't, become enraged at things I had no control over. She never wanted me to have my own friendships and tried to isolate me. She would tell me about celebrities she had crushes on, but if I told her about my crushes, she would become furious with me and not talk to me for days. She would also laugh at my crushes and start to pick them apart to the point where I felt like I was an idiot for being attracted to them and like I had cheated on my girlfriend because I was attracted to someone else. Because of the insecurity I developed around sex, I have never orgasmed with another person. I have always faked it and quickly because I have been afraid of taking too long. Any positive experiences with your abuser? Sometimes my ex could be really loving during sex, and sometimes she would show genuine moments of appreciation and love for me, but they were too interlaced with all the yelling and criticizing, and I never knew when all the bad stuff was coming. Darkest thoughts. There have been times when I wanted to blow up the world, much less so now, but every once in a while I feel like humans are beyond hope, and I want to wipe out the whole world so the universe can start over and do a better job next time. Darkest secrets. I have never come while having sex with my current partner, a woman I love with my whole heart, who showers me with love and affection every day. I've faked it every time. She knows I have some sexual hang-ups, and she is so patient and gentle with me, and I am making progress, but I can't bring myself to tell her that I have pretended to come with her. I think she would be able to hear it, and I know she would love me just the same, but I just can't tell her. Also, I stole a few thousand dollars from a soul-sucking job I had a long time ago. I think I should feel bad about that, but I don't. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Being alone on my own planet in an open field, smelling the grass with the sun warming my face and the wind gently caressing my body where I could pleasure myself for as long as I liked without being seen or judged by anyone. That's kind of a beautiful one of the, the, uh, the uh, planet. Uh, being on your own planet. That, I gotta say, that's a little selfish. That you, that, that, that you got your own planet. What about the rest of us? Um, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone? And by the way, if you've never jerked off outdoors uh, on a sunny day, highly recommend it. Uh, what are the sexual fantasies most powerful to you? Um, no, I'm sorry. The, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? To my current partner, I am so sorry. I haven't told you that I faked orgasms with you. I love sex with you, and you make me feel safe and loved. By faking it, I feel like I've lied to you, and you deserve better than that. To my ex, 
Thanks for ruining something that is supposed to be one of life's primal joys and leaving me with years and years of detangling the destruction you left in your wake. I know you came from a difficult upbringing and that you have your own shitty hand you've been dealt to cope with, but seriously, you really are a raging bag of twat. (laughs) Never heard that one before. What, if anything, do you wish for to be fully free and open when having sex with my partner? Have you shared these things with others? I've told my current partner a lot of stuff except for the orgasm faking and she has been so kind and loving and she has told me how sorry she is that I had to go through that. She has also offered to kick my ex's ass. How do you feel after writing this down? A little unsteady. Once I hit done, it's out there in the world, but relieved and empowered. Maybe a little scared still. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences, no one has the right to treat you like shit. Amen. Amen. And thank you uh thank you for sharing that. I really hope you get to a place where you can uh share that with your partner. I think it can wind up bringing you closer together and uh I would bet just by telling her that it may be easier to orgasm because there would just be uh less shit in your head other than the moment. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by Jess about her depression. She writes, darkness and sleeping. That is a good description. About ADHD, too many projects. About her anxiety, like the universe is shaking, but only I can feel it. About her love addiction, obsessive, laser-focused tunnel vision. About being an abuser. Sometimes I say mean things and I hear them and I know it, but I can't take it back. It feels awful. Um, Snapshot from her life. Uh, When my best and oldest friend showed up at my house randomly, uh, couldn't understand why I didn't want to see her and then she did. I had a black eye and a bruised face. My now ex had punched me straight in the face. I remember the blood pouring out of my nose onto my white wife beater, ha ha, also probably his, and staining my favorite bra. When I went back to work, I lied and said I'd been accidentally elbowed in the face by the very friend who looked at me with more fear than I've ever seen that day. Wow, that is a a hard image. That is a hard image. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Joshi. He's straight. He's in his 20s. He was raised in an environment that was pretty dysfunctional. Uh, He's never been sexually abused. Um, But he writes, uh, Before kindergarten, as a kid, I remember a girl in my class telling me to follow her underneath uh, on one of the play toys. underneath one of the play toys. She wanted to feel under my pants and said I could feel under hers. I was young and embarrassed, so I complied briefly as if it was a hot plate. She said, no, like this, and took my hand. I panicked and ran away. I saw her underneath the toy with another boy 10 minutes later. The whole ordeal was very confusing, and I've never known what to think of it. Um, Ever been physically or emotionally abused? Not sure. Throughout early childhood, my parents would fight and scream in their room at night. It would build up and get worse and worse until there would be sounds of someone being hit. Yeah, exposing your children to that is definitely emotional abuse. 
Mom would run to my room for safety, again, emotional abuse, knowing my dad would never follow her in there to hit me. She would climb into my bed and cuddle me and just cry. Yes, emotional abuse. One time I asked her what was going on and she just said shh and told me to go to sleep. Over time, after that, I would pretend to be asleep, but her crying would keep me up. The next day, they acted like nothing had happened, and they were totally happy and fine. I was not allowed to talk about it with them, and to this day, have a hard time remembering how often or what the fighting was about. I remember wanting to help my mom feel better, but being completely powerless to the situation. They are different people now and very happy together, as far as I can tell, and the subject is very much off-limits to talk about. Uh, any positive experience with the abusers? I feel closer to my mom because she would come to me for comfort. That is so heartbreaking. And that that is what is so confusing about uh, emotional incest from a parent is there is a there is a certain amount of gratification to it. You know, I remember my ego feeling um, big that that my mom that I was able to go in and comfort my mom about how bad her marriage was or how she was, you know, um, you know, at her wit's end and ready to pack up and leave. And um, it never occurred to me how damaging that was because I felt like a little adult. Darkest thoughts. I often fantasize about my enti- entire family dying in some freak accident, especially on holidays when they are all in one place. I do not like my family. Everything feels like some stage play around them. The idea of everyone in my family being dead and me being the only one left is very relaxing. Well, I think you know what it is you got to do. Oh. Your mission should you choose to accept it, is to go to the Bahamas. If you're going to take your family out, at least do it someplace tropical. That's all I ask. Darkest secrets. In third grade, I almost made a poor attempt at suicide. After school, I went home and knocked out the screen in my window. I wrapped the rope for the blinds around my neck and sat there taking in the neighborhood. I now know that that was a poor choice and I would have simply embarrassed myself. My mom opened the door and looked confused. I pretended I was tangled in the rope and played dumb. She simply said, be careful and shut the door. I remember sitting there and thinking, where would she go to cry if I wasn't in my room anymore? Oh my God, that is so heartbreaking. So I got down and laid in my bed the rest of the day. Oh, buddy, I just want to give you a hug. Oh. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Dominating someone has always attracted me. The first porn magazine I found had bondage in it, so I think that might have something to do with it. I'm embarrassed after sharing this. You shouldn't feel embarrassed. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would like to tell my family how much I hate them. They would never understand. We've all become so good at acting like there isn't a problem in front of each other. I wonder if... uh, Although I doubt your parents would go for it, but I, I wonder about uh, family counseling. What about uh, just uh, go to some dinner with them and just in the middle of it, just say, I think we should all go to counseling. And then just watch watch the awkwardness begin. But uh, I don't know. That might be, you know, that might even be something to say, you know, if you, if you, if, if you guys want to continue having a relationship with me, um, we have to go to counseling because I am feeling drained 
and distant in uh, our relationship. And there's a lot of stuff that we need to talk about that uh, I have a hard time talking about. What, if anything, do you wish for? Independence and love. I am financially bound to my parents because I've gotten myself in crippling debt. I was married for... That's the thing that sucks about being in debt to parents who are abusive is... Uh, my heart goes out to him. I was married for four years out of high school and in a two-year relationship after that. Both relationships were extremely codependent, and although I enjoyed the feeling of being loved, they were not good people for me. I always feel totally alone, and being with someone helps weaken the feeling, if only for a little bit. Have you shared these things with others? I've told my parents about feeling alone and depressed. My dad saw my wrists and saw that I was cutting in high school and simply said, don't do that, and covered up the cuts. I asked my parents if I could see a therapist too, and it took months before they even considered it. I did all the footwork and looked for someone. The therapist was Christian and said he would pray for me. Then when I went in a good mood one day, he said God had cured me, and that was the last time I've been to see anyone. Oh, God. How do you feel after writing these things down? Empty. People always say talking about what's wrong makes you feel better, but I feel the opposite. I don't know if anything will ever help me feel, not feel so empty and alone. I hate myself and oftentimes hate the people around me. I'm paranoid about others' intentions and dwell on anything bad or dumb I've ever done. I've given myself until October to feel better before I will finally be okay with letting go. Nothing ever seems to help and I feel more empty now than ever. Oh, you know, I hate when I when I come across a sentence like that because I don't know what to say because I'm afraid anything I say will will sound trite or or cliche. And I guess I I just want to say hang in there and I hope after listen, listening to the episode with Lisa, um, you might feel differently. And I think if if you can find a way to protect yourself and your relationship with your parents, which I'm sure is very complicated because of your debt, um, that might help bring a little bit of hope into this situation. Um, for me, I know when I have felt at my most hopeless is when I was advocating for myself the least. And uh, it sounds like you're not doing much advocating for yourself because you don't know where to begin. So maybe therapy would be a good place to get back to. And um, hang in there, buddy. Hang in there. This is from The Struggle in a Sentence, filled out by Alice, and about being an abuser. She writes, uh, you'd all be nothing without me. I tend to coddle and enable you. You owe me everything, and I'm going to make sure you know it. Uh, snapshot from her life. When my sister's episodes get really bad and she gets so depressed she goes catatonic, I go numb. She hoards stuff. 
and the house ends up littered with shit, stuff on every countertop. I get home and find the house messy and start cleaning up after her. I wash her clothing and dishes. I vacuum up. I I buy groceries. I clean and tidy everything away that I don't want to see, and then I'll either take some beer to my room and drink or bite and pick at my arms until they bleed. Sometimes I'll trip over something on the floor she left, and I'll suddenly see the apartment with full clarity, uh, a shrine of sickness. Uh, I find myself hating the apartment and the way it feels so much that I actually took a sleeping bag and camped out in the park a few times. Wow. That is that is quite an image. That is quite an image. I don't know how people... Um, hoarding would just drive me fucking bananas. This is uh, from the Struggle in a Sentence survey. This is filled out by Amanda and about her, o- OC- her OCD. She writes, but what happens if I don't end on an even number? I don't want to find out. Snapshot from her life. Knowing I've locked the door, but I still turn around and go back seven miles to my house and check because the thought of leaving it to chance makes me vomit. Short and sweet. Right to the vomit. No fucking around. No fucking around for Amanda. This is Shame and Secrets survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Jane Burnham. She's asexual in her 20s, raised in a stable and safe environment. Uh, Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, She doesn't specify. Uh, Ever been physically or emotionally abused? Not sure. My mom, quote, talked at me about issues in my life and then said, if I didn't want you, I wouldn't have had you and and uh, would have left you by the trash, like trash, a trash baby. She said this jokingly. Well, it sounds hilarious. Uh, any positive experience with your abusers? Sometimes my mom is nice to me, but then she's someone who talks at me. Darkest thoughts. You know, I was just thinking today that the things that parents share with their children are oftentimes even less important than the manner in which they share them with their child. You know, you may be giving your kid important advice, but if you do it in a tone that is exasperated and angry, um, you might, you'd be better off just not saying anything and waiting until you can say it in a way that isn't scary darkest thoughts sometimes i wonder about suicide darkest secrets i've pissed and shit in a pool beyond the age that that would be deemed some kind of accident or funny i've done it deliberately in the hopes that nobody found out i was found out that had to be an awkward moment is that your shit there in the deep end no i shit in the shallow end (laughs) i don't know whose that is Oh, and can you stop asking me questions until I'm done pissing? Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Sometimes I get turned on while watching movies. It makes me feel weird because sometimes the scenes aren't even sexual ones. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Then I am fucked up. I need you to see that. Please help me. Please help me. Oh, this, I remember this survey. That that just moved me and moves me now. So much reading that. Please help me. Please help me. 
What, if anything, do you wish for, for people to understand me and to let me be happy and do what I like? Have you shared these things with others? I have, but I've ceased slash pulled back a bit because I feel like a burden. Banish that thought from your head. And if your friends are making you feel like a burden, they're not your friends. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel like a fake and a burden. I can't express myself. I think you have expressed yourself very well, and you are not a burden and not fake. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? When I try to talk about something serious with a family member who's concerned for me, I freeze up and I cry. I always cry. I feel like I can't speak what's on my mind. When I so badly want to express myself, it just becomes I don't know. Well, you know, crying is a way of expressing yourself. Crying is a way of saying out loud, I am in pain. So cry. You know, unless you're, these family members are telling you to stop crying, cry as long as you, as long as it takes. And and if they seem impatient with your crying, find somebody who's safe to cry in front of and cry and let them hold you. You know, the best friends are the friends that, that don't have a, you know, a time schedule when, when you're, uh pain when you want to talk about your pain you know this is assuming that it's not a you know completely codependent a draining relationship but it sounds to me from from what you've shared like it's like it's not that this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a woman who calls herself say so about being a sex crime victim uh, i was the rag they wiped up their mess with oh that is that is Sometimes I just don't have words. Snapshot uh, from her life. When my mom died, my dad said, so I hear your mom died. (laughs) That's right up there with the earlier one of uh, if you'd been a better daughter, your dad wouldn't have killed yourself. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Soldier of Loneliness on Zoloft and Red Bull. He is straight in his 30s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, he writes, but also safe and loved. He's never been sexually abused, never been physically or emotionally abused. Darkest thoughts, I think about leaving, leaving work, leaving home, leaving my family. I fantasized about living by myself in a van on the road so that I'm not stuck in one place. There is no one to put pressure on me and I can indulge in the things I'm ashamed of without having to hide them or fear of being caught, like eating lots of food, drinking only Red Bull, masturbating to lesbian porn, and watching violent movies. Even though a dark corner of my mind desires this, I know that I would be unhappy because I would be away from my wife and daughters, who I love more than it everything and my selfishness would harm them and make me unworthy of their love i'm scared because i'm fairly sure that i know how my life will end decades from now i will be divorced alone homeless and by suicide you know my first thought as i read this is a i've had that fantasy about eight thousand times and b is there a way for you 
to do little mini versions of that with something that is healthy for you in your daily life, like a hobby, something that is just for you. You know, every parent needs that that me time so they can recharge their battery. And um, it's it sounds to me like your way of recharging your battery is in, is engaging in things that are addictive and destructive. And while it may feel like a temporary relief, it's ultimately wind, ultimately winding up draining you even more. Um, Darkest secrets. I've masturbated naked to internet porn while binging on fast food in the trunk of my car after getting off work. I'm going to assume it's a hatchback and not a trunk trunk because I don't know how you would get out of the trunk. Um, but uh, that is... Uh, that is... Uh, I don't even know the word for it. It's I kind of want to hug you and I kind of want to high five you because it's there's nothing I love more when I'm when I'm like engaging in something that isn't healthy for me about it just being in a small space and it's kind of dark and 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 nobody's around and uh, going uh, go you you're going trunk. I gotta say that's uh that's you could turn pro. I think you could turn pro. Uh, I've spent hundreds of dollars on my food addiction in cash so that my wife does not know. The scars on my arms are not from working in freight like I tell people. They are from scraping away layers of skin with fingernail clippers to one, feel something other than the pain in my mind and heart, and two, to create some physical proof that I really am hurting, not just being dramatic for attention. Oh, man. That is painful. That is... Sometimes I just want to reach, reach through my screen and give you guys a hug. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. My wife and I have a satisfying sex life. We are comfortable doing what the other person is turned on by and asking for what we want. This makes me even more ashamed of my porn use and masturbation because I've got no good reason to seek out sexual gratification away from her. Unless it was something, unless it's a habit, it's an addiction that maybe developed when you were a teen. So maybe that would be a good place to start would to be uh, to go to a support group for sex addiction. Um, or maybe go to a therapist first to, you know, run it by them. Uh, what if anything do you wish for? Sometimes I wish everything would disapp- disappear, not death, just poof, nothing. Have you shared these things with others? I would share all these shameful secrets with someone who would just listen and love me, not a therapist. I have a good one helping me to change. I'm describing someone who could hear these things, but would also just let me be. Support group? How do you feel after writing these things down? Numb, a little sad about how fucked I am and doubtful that it will end, but also a little relieved because I've never spoken or written these secrets before. What do you think about bringing this, um, reading this to your therapist? I think that would be a really, really good thing to do. Um, and it sounds like, you know, there's there's some connection between you and your wife. Um what if anything would you like to share to some is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences when it's all you can do just make sure you stay alive that's how i'm still here and we are glad
We are glad that you are still here. Uh, this was uh, this is Shame and Secrets filled out by a woman who calls herself Milk Curtain Kid. She's straight in her 20s, raised in a totally chaotic environment, um, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. My mom rubbed Vaseline on my private parts when I was five years old. She told me it was because I had a bladder infection. Looking back, there's no reason that would be necessary. She is an exhibitionist. Uh, she's been emotionally abused. Uh, I was shifted from shelter to shelter so that she could avoid the Florida Law Department who wanted to arrest her for fraud and child abuse. The emotional abuse was that I was stuck in shelters or small one-room apartments locked inside. I was not allowed to attend school because that requires being identified. If I told anyone who I was, my mother would make us move. She claimed to have a bad back, and so I would move my belongings from place to place. By the end of my childhood, I had moved 60 times in 11 different states in Canada, changed my name three times. I was kept from my father and siblings on his side. I was forced to lie to the police to protect my abusive mother. I regret that I stayed with her every day. I was brainwashed. Any positive experience with your abusers? I have traveled and become extremely close to my sister on my mom's side. We were best friends until recently when I stopped giving my mother money. Wow, your mother sounds so sick. Oh my God. Darkest thoughts. I haven't talked to my mother in over six months. I Facebook stalk her through an account that she is unaware I see. Today, uh, I posted sad day because I didn't acknowledge her for Mother's Day. I thought about her ending her own life and how relieved I would feel. This makes me feel horrible. I think fantasizing about a parent dying is probably you know, one of the most common things that, you know, a parent or a family member or a spouse or a, you know, boss, don't, don't ever feel bad about, you know, the only the time to feel bad is when you're at the hardware store browsing duct tape. That is when the bad feeling should, should kick in. Uh, darkest secrets. I get off when people in porn are in pain. I wish my husband was rough with me in bed. I hate being female. I constantly try to lose weight so that my female parts don't show. I am straight and a woman, but sometimes I wish I had an excuse to get a breast reduction. I don't want to look like my mother who forced me to see her large, obese, naked body every day growing up and sleep in the one bed we had next to her disgusting body. Sexual fantasy most powerful to you. Anal rape gets me off. Also watching very small women struggle to please large men. What if anything would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would like to tell my mom that she is a drain on society and resources. That the only person who cares about her is the daughter she brainwashed. That she deserved to go to jail for what she did and it will never be fair that she goes unpunished for ruining any chance I had for a normal life and to attend school. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish that when the police came to my door in Philadelphia when I was 14 and asked for me by my real name, that I had told them my real name instead of telling them it was not me and that I was not home. I told the police that I was a different person when they asked for me by name. It was the first time I heard my real name in seven years, and I didn't give my mother up. I should have told them my mom was upstairs hiding from them and to take her away. Wow, that is so heavy. Have you shared th these things with others? Some of it, but not to this level of truth. 
How do you feel after writing these things down? Angry, but I want people to be aware that parental abduction is a seriously fucked up thing to do. Not allowing a child to attend school from ages 7 to 18 makes me so sad. Wow, this one just is unbelievable. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? If you are a parent who is in trouble, you should do the right thing and face the charges. Never try to manipulate your children into believing you are a perfect parent. Oh, man. I hope you are advocating for yourself these days. That is... Thank you for sharing that and sending you a big bundle of love and good vibes. This is a struggle in a sentence. This is filled out by a guy who calls himself Johnny Toxic, 1985. And by the way, we do have uh, some awful some moments and some uh, happy moments. I forgot to insert these. <laughs> it suddenly occurred to me, wow, this is a, this is a long string of kind of darkness. And I realized, oh, I forgot because... What I'll do is I'll, I'll take the, uh, the awful some moments and the happy moments and I'll kind of insert them, stagger them throughout the thing so that doesn't. <laughs> but now we're but now we've got a, a, a nice home stretch of, uh, of things. Uh, this is let's get right to them. This is an awful some moment filled out by a woman who calls herself "Be in my toke." She writes, I was lying in bed under my covers crying. My boyfriend peeked in and left. He eventually creeps back into the room with my favorite supper, ice cream and tea, and some smart-ass joke that made me laugh. He doesn't think he knows how to comfort me, but he sure as hell does a good job. That's beautiful. This is an awful moment filled out by uh, Blackbird. And... Uh, she writes, when I was a kid, my uncle was the black sheep of the family. We were an upstanding, educated Christian family. Grandma, a nurse, aunt, a nurse, uncle, a CEO, my mom, an accountant, and then my uncle. The pothead, nearly homeless, paycheck to paycheck, sometimes employed guy. He lived in a shitty house that always reeked of cigarettes, but he had this almost life-sized plaster human skull with a snake coming out of his eyes that glowed in the dark. It both freaked me the fuck out and intrigued me. He died when I was 13 of an alcohol cocaine overdose. Surprise, surprise. When he died, my mom asked me if there was anything of his I wanted. Couldn't think of a thing or why I would even want anything of his in the first place, but at the last minute I remembered the skull. Just as I told her, she said that my cousin had already asked for it. I was really disappointed. Less than a week later, my cousin was killed in a car accident. I got that skull after all. It was such an awful situation and feeling, uh, awful situation and feeling, and of course the skull wasn't worth my cousin's life, but it's so fucking ironic how I ended up with it anyway. I still have it, and I'm 26, so 13 years later. And when it glows at night, it still freaks me out. Thank you for that. This is an awful moment filled out by a guy who calls himself somebody to love. He writes, I'm 19 and was raised in a very strict household. My dad was the head of a church. At one point, he always questioned uh, 
At one point, he always questioned my motives like I did something wrong. Are you on drugs? I never was. I know you're doing drugs. I raised you better than this. I left for a year and come back to walk in on him and his wife smoking pot. My response? You raised me better than this, Dad. This is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Melissa Petron. Petron? Uh, she writes, I had just taken a trip. Let's see, do I want to read this one first or this next one? Yeah, I'll read this one. I'd just taken a trip to see my family that lives eight hours away, and I'd planned to stop and visit my dad's grave on my way back home. My dad is buried in a tiny country cemetery off the interstate, which I don't live near, and no one I know lives there anymore, so I have to make a special trip to visit his grave. Since it was a beautiful day and I only visit him once a year, I decided I would pack a sandwich and eat lunch with him like I would if he was still alive. I was looking forward to this and had it planned out for days. He's buried in a small cemetery in the middle of nowhere in a prairie-like setting next to an old beautiful church. My dad died suddenly when he was 46, so we never talked about where he wanted to be buried, but in that moment, I knew this was where he wanted to be. There was so much peace and beauty there and I was so happy to be there with him. I sat down by his grave, pulling out my sandwich and Coke. <laughs> what if she meant Coke the drug? <laughs> I started doing lines on his gravestone. Sat down by his grave and pulled out my sandwich and Coke. I was feeling so free and comfortable to do whatever I wanted. I had envisioned I would tell him about what was going on in my life, all the good and bad, but as I was sitting there, I realized he already knows everything, and I laughed out loud. Before I got there, I was feeling very anxious and worried about my life struggles. And in that moment, as I was sitting by my dad's grave, those feelings diminished, and I felt like everything was going to be okay. It was like he was there with me, telling me everything is going to be okay. This will always be a precious memory that I will cherish and remember forever. Thank you, Dad, for always being there for me, even after your time on earth is over. I love you and miss you. That's so beautiful. And then finally, this is a happy moment from a woman who calls herself Bacon Pizza. She writes, My mom and I say I love you to each other a lot. This is nice, but because we say it so often, I usually don't think about what it means. Recently, I was goofing around, being silly and weird around the house, and my mom looked at me and said, You're... And I said, What? And she paused and smiled at me and said... I just love you. They were the same words I'm used to hearing her saying, but it was different to hear her say it then. When she said it, it felt like a revelation, something she said not out of habit, but because she was struck in the moment with a feeling of love. I realized how amazingly lucky I am to have someone who loves me imperfectly but beautifully. Love it. Love it, love it, love it. Well, if you've listened this far and you had a plan like the guy in our surveys who talked about October being a cutoff date, I hope you've heard something. It gives you a little glimmer of hope. 
That lets you know you're not alone. That lets you know so many of us, even though our circumstances might be different, so many of us are feeling overwhelmed, jaded, cynical, tired. But the one constant in the universe is that things change. And asking for help can so often lead to that change being positive. And why not? Why not? I'm so glad I asked for help. I'm so glad I get to share this stuff with you guys so it so it's not a waste that I went through this. And I know I say this a lot, but I feel like I can never say it enough that the things that I was ashamed of, the things that I wanted to kill myself over, are the very things that bring me closer to people when I share them because it lets them know that they're that I'm just as fucked up and as crazy as they are and that I'm still here and that I can have a day that's good and smile. I had a good day today. You know, so just take it one day at a time. Just work one hour at a time. Don't worry about where your life is going to be five years from now. That is a trap that will lead to you staring at the wall with your mouth open. And be good to yourself. And uh, just remember you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I in some weird way. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.